Hey, this is Steve Campbell from the C3 Church. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Our prayer for you is that you'll be blessed, equipped, and enabled as you listen to this message. God bless you. It's great to be back with you all at C3 uh, this morning. It's great to see some of you um, this morning, and it's great to reconnect with those of you who are online as well. Um, If anybody has figured out a mask that doesn't take your lipstick off, would you let me know? Thank you. Um, I know that you've been traveling um, through uh, the Beatitudes um, as a church, Um, otherwise known as blessings. I like to think of them as adventures in joy. And they're found right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapter 5 from verse 3 to 11. So you will already know uh, that this is one of the best known parts of Jesus' uh, teaching in the New Testament. And it's also a reminder that strange, challenging, and troubling times like ours are always pregnant with possibility. In other words, you and I were actually made for times like these. And Jesus has prepared us for it. It's through these blessings that Jesus outlines the path to the good life. And as you've begun to discover, this path is counterintuitive. It takes you through a track that you wouldn't expect to go down. And today we're faced with the challenge of the fourth blessing. And we find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled or you shall be satisfied. So what I want to do with this time is firstly to ask what is meant by hunger and thirst. And secondly, what is meant by righteousness in this passage Because like it or not, want it or not, the fourth way to the good life is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to do it in a way that is apparently going to satisfy. Well, we all know what it means to hunger and thirst, right? Or do we? The truth is the metaphor hunger and thirst doesn't really resonate with us so much in the Western world. We often think of hunger as missing a few meals in a row, or as thirst as hanging out on a hot day, waiting for over an hour to get a cold drink. And with maybe a few exceptions, most of us have probably never experienced life-threatening hunger and thirst. Food and water are plentiful, even if they're not always affordable in this part of the world. So it's very easy to miss the sense of urgency that Jesus is trying to convey in these words. By contrast, in Jesus' day, the very opposite was true. People were often hungry and thirsty because both food and potable water were scarce. And many years ago, I traveled to Ghana, the country of my birth, during a time of regional drought. There was very little for sale in the markets or the supermarkets. It didn't matter how much money you had. There was nothing to buy. And I witnessed for the first time just how hard 
and how urgently hungry and thirsty people work in order to gain food and water. In fact, the activity was all-consuming. It was top priority because their very lives depended upon it. But the idea of hunger is also used in other ways, such as the consuming desire of a young and inexperienced sports team that are hungry for a win, or an individual who, after a string of failures, is hungry for success. And in their hunger and passion, they're provoked to invest 100% of their efforts. The Bible often uses hunger and thirst to exemplify powerful desires. It's a well-known theme in Scripture. God says in Isaiah 55, 1-2, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. And in John 6, 35, Jesus declares, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus wasn't saying, blessed are those who are kind of concerned to grow a bit of righteousness. The Greek word in our passage expresses a passionate longing for something that we crave like the food and water we cannot do without. And the blessing is pronounced only on those whose hunger and thirst are not intermittent, here today and gone with breakfast, but are a constant consuming passion. If you have an insatiable desire and persistent longing today, it could be a good thing unless it's for a Cadbury's chocolate bar, a packet of crisps, a new car, the affirmation of your peers, accolades, celebrity status, security, safety, prosperity, and self-fulfillment. And it's not that any of those things are terrible in and of themselves. Even I know what it means to fancy a bag of crisps. Need to stay on focus this morning. But if I really want to access God's good life, and not just my B-movie version of it, then my consuming passion, my energies, my convictions, my commitments would be better directed elsewhere. When righteousness is the focus of my persistent longings and passions, God's favor is never far away. Deep joy and satisfaction is never far away because God's good life is experienced by those who feel most at home in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing near. So what about righteousness? And what does it mean in the context of the good life? Now this is actually where we need to take a step back. Because when we come to a word like righteousness, we immediately think of what it means within our own cultural context, rather than what it may have meant for those in Jesus' day. This is so much so that we can actually miss the point. Our dictionary definitions and cultural context encourage us to think of righteousness primarily in terms of private morality. This means that many of us quickly associate the word righteousness with people who set themselves up as holier than you, holier than me, holier than thou. Self-righteous. 
So when we see this word in the Bible, we often travel down a track that focuses on personal piety or moral uprightness. Not that the idea of God imparting his upright character in and through us is entirely absent from the context. It's just that the Greek word that is used here, that's translated as righteousness, already comes with rich heritage and meaning. It's always translated throughout both Old and New Testaments as both justice as well as righteousness. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's usually translated into English as justice is mishvat. The term is often paired with sadaka, which is usually translated as righteousness. And together you usually see them paired as justice and righteousness in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, they're simply collapsed into righteousness or simply justice. Now, the astute among you will already be thinking, but that doesn't get us any closer to what Jesus means by this aspect of the good life in Matthew 5, 6. Because our ideas of justice are also confusing. So let's take another step back and acknowledge this and clarify that in contrast to our thinking of righteousness as a kind of private, personal uprightness, when we think of justice, we tend to think of it as something that is public, Retribution often, punishment, specifically directed to those who make us or others suffer. When we say, I want justice, we often mean, I want my rights, and I want them from that person or through that legal system. And before I moved to where I now live in Birmingham, I'd been praying for my totally unchurched neighbors for over 10 years. Eventually I had the privilege of marrying them, um, but they weren't yet Christians. So you can imagine my encourage, how encouraged I was, actually, when one day John knocks on the door out of the blue and says, my mother and sister, who happen to live in another part of the city of Birmingham, have started to attend an Alpha ch uh, course at their local Anglican church. And he said, very sheepishly, we were wondering if you and Cham, Cham's my housemate, also a pastor, uh, would mind if we all got together from time to time um, over a meal and they got a chance to ask you questions about the Alpha course. They're a bit shy at church because everybody seems to be Christians there um, and they don't want to look stupid. Now I know John's mum and sister, and I can't believe they're shy anywhere, but, well, you can imagine. I really had to think hard about that. Hmm. Sit in a room full of unbelievers talking about Jesus, or stay at home and watch TV. When the first opportunity came, we sat around the front room, kids running around, talking, answering questions, until we got to the subject of suffering. And at this point, John's sister said, you know, whenever suffering comes up at the Alpha group, there's this woman who keeps saying, God is just. And she keeps repeating, God is just. God is just. But what I want to know is, God is just what? And that, of course, is the question. 
She didn't know it, but she had hit the nail right on the head. We toss the words righteousness and justice around as if everyone knows what they're talking about and as if we, as if we know what we're talking about. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. So what does it mean? So we go back to those two Hebrew words I was talking about earlier, mishvat and tzedekah. They roughly correspond to putting things right, corrective justice, and doing things right, distributive justice. And both ideas are combined in our New Testament Greek word. This kind of justice has no limit. It applies in private as well as public. It applies to the personal, to the interpersonal, to the systemic. In fact, justice belongs everywhere God has interests, which means everywhere. This kind of righteousness points to living in the world as God wants it to be. It means we should be hungry and thirsty to put things right when wrongdoing occurs and hungry and thirsty to live in right relationship with God, right relationship with everyone else and right relationship with the rest of the creation as far as it depends on us. The wonderful thing is the blessing isn't just for those who are perfect at doing justice. The blessing is for those who have a desire to do justice, a passion, a longing to do justice. In other words, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is to yearn for more of God's rule to be made manifest in and through us. We need to pursue justice, not just because the world is broken, but also because we're broken. So contrary to popular belief, God doesn't love punishment. What God loves is right relationships, right actions, right order. The justice Jesus calls his followers to hunger and thirst for in these blessings is about life, reconciliation, restoration of relationships with God, one another in creation. I'm always a bit dismayed when Christians are surprised to see a commitment to justice as a normal path to the good life. Because the entire story of God's journey with God's people from Genesis to Revelation is preoccupied with putting things right and doing things right. In the words of one theologian, divine justice is one of the marks of the kingdom of God because God is in the business of putting the, world's, the world to rights. God's commitment to justice is revealed through what I call the high water mark, Old Testament and New Testament passages of the Bible that explicitly address justice and injustice. Exodus 22, Jeremiah 22, Isaiah 1, 58, 61, Matthew 25, Luke 4, there are so many of them. But his commitment is also visible in the low water mark events of the Bible that implicitly address themes of justice and injustice, such as when God chooses to reveal himself to humanity, not through the powerful or the slave masters, but through the powerless and the slaves. God chooses the Israelites, Deuteronomy 7, 7, precisely because they're the least of the least of the least. And in Exodus 20, verse 2, God seems to flaunt his credentials as a liberator of the oppressed by prefacing the Ten Commandments with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, therefore. 
then fast-track to the New Testament and in an unexpected twist, at least from the perspective of the early disciples, because we already know the end to the story. Jesus of Nazareth, the person identified as inaugurating God's reign of justice, falls victim to a miscarriage of justice and joins the victims. That should tell us something about how fully God identifies with the victims of injustice. And why should we be surprised? The story of scripture is about a displaced, colonized, marginalized, oppressed group of people. And Jesus is always the Palestinian Jew who grew up with shame, the shame of being conceived out of wedlock and then forced to flee to Egypt as a child refugee. God's commitment to justice is also evident in the biblical and theological tools he provides to us for putting things right and doing things right. The tools are not so readily available to unbelievers. So in many ways, Christians are uniquely qualified to address issues of injustice. The biggest surprise is that we're not always leading the charge and sometimes we're not even part of the charge. We have theological tools including the concept of sin, which in the Bible is personal, social, internal, external, interpersonal, and systemic. It's never just about the things we do commit. It's also about the things we don't do, omit. Over and over again throughout the Bible, God identifies groups that are regularly sinned against by omission and commission. It's sometimes described as the quartet of the vulnerable, widows, orphans, immigrants, the poor, the oppressed in scripture, those excluded from economic opportunities and social justice, the physically, materially exploited and marginalized. And God is constantly reminding his own people as well as the surrounding nations, widows' lives matter, orphans' lives matter, Immigrants' lives matter. The poor, their lives matter. Because unfortunately, sometimes both Israel and the nations behaved as if those lives didn't matter at all. These people were disproportionately vulnerable to injustice and disproportionately victims of injustice. There are other theological ideas. Confession. 1 John 1 9 solidarity if one part suffers every part suffers with it conviction repentance conversion transformation recreation the idea of sin enables us to recognize what needs to be put right confession enables us to own our part in what needs to be put right repentance enables us to align ourselves with the way God has designed us and the world to be. All the tools recognize and expect the need for change. They expect that believers as individuals or groups will recognize that we too have been guilty of valuing some bodies over others, men over women, the rich over the poor, Christian over Jewish, white over black, and that we will own the part we have played as individuals or groups and turn away from personal and social sin by taking recognizable and decisive steps in the opposite direction. 
this beatitude challenges us to ask ourselves whether we are really hungry and thirsty for this righteousness, whether we really long for the world, my life, my family, my workplace, my region, my country, to be closer to the way God wants it. When relationships between people and God are being healed, relationships between people and people are being healed, relationships between people and systems are being healed, relationships between people and creation are being healed. When your own relationship with yourself is being healed, justice is being done. So what does hunger and thirst for righteousness look like in a racialized world where lives are valued less and made more challenging simply because of skin color? The world has been broken by sin and throughout history, God is in the process of restoring it. One day, Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven will be fully realized and God's kingdom will be revealed in all its fullness. On that day, God's justice will be restored and every person's true worth will be recognized. So believe it or not, you are actually blessed when you feel perpetually dissatisfied with the way things are. You are blessed when you long to be part of God's answer to setting things right. I often find that as Christians, we settle for too little. We commit ourselves to acts of compassion and we commit ourselves to advocacy and speaking up for others. But acts of compassion and advocacy are not justice. Only justice is justice. Make the exercise of justice and reorienting life to what God intended and to all God desires, your Christian normal. Then you'll be blessed. So it's never too late to change your diet. If you plan to eat later, how about a bowl of righteousness? If you plan to drink later, why not try a cup of justice? And whatever you do, don't wait for somebody to serve it up to you. Go and find it. In the meantime, if you ever despair of the vast complexity or the enormity of the task, here's some wisdom from Mother Teresa. Very often, we can only contribute a small drop in an ocean of need, but the ocean itself is made up of small drops. So, stay hungry, stay thirsty. Amen. Let's pray together. Stay hungry, stay thirsty. Lord, we want to do justice. We've heard that from Kate through her voice. We hear yours. We want to do it. Help us to be those that go from here and do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And just read that quote that she made there again before we sing our last song. It says this, Divine justice is one of the marks of the kingdom of God. God rules because God is in the business of putting the worlds to rights. Kate also said, didn't she, about earlier on about we're all broken people. We need a savior. But it's not just personal. It's bigger than that. But it is personal as well. So we always give opportunity in our services here and anyone who's watching online to, Im to personally embrace the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. To make him first and foremost in your life. To reorientate your life around him and his purpose, which is righteousness and justice. It won't stay here, but it could start here. So we're going to pray a prayer and I'm going to pray, ask you here in the room or if you're online to pray this prayer with us. And at the end, I'll just simply say if you prayed this prayer for the first time or maybe rededicating your life to Jesus, that you, if you're in the room, you raise a hand. If you're online, that you like or put a comment in the box or you make sure you follow us on YouTube, that you make some action step to say, yeah, I want to follow. I want to keep following Jesus in community with others as together we seek to bring righteousness and justice in. So let's bow our heads, pray this prayer with me, and then if you're in the room or online, respond as is right for you. Say this, Lord Jesus Christ, today I choose to change my life and follow you. I want to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness forgive me for living a self-centered sinful life today I embrace you Jesus Christ as my leader and Lord thank you for hearing me in your name I pray amen still with our heads bowed eyes closed anyone here in the room saying yes today I chose that prayed that prayer Anybody here or online, please make sure you're indicating. Anybody else, I'm trusting there's someone online there that's saying yes to Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray it's been a blessing to you. Why not share it with your friends and family through social media? If you're not on the regular podcast list, then why don't you subscribe? Thank you especially to those that give. If you want to give to this ministry, you can go to our website, thec3.uk slash giving and get involved. God bless you.